Dale, I realised I didn't, uh, I didn't actually say anything about what I do outside of church ministry, so if you just permit me 30 seconds. <laughs> Sorry, folks, I, I got lost in thinking about the church, uh, campus church. Um, so, I, 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 again, I have to, I mean, Mandy, I'm looking at you, I, Carl's not here, but obviously we'd love him to be, but um, when I um, was training at Newark, one of the first things that Pastor Carl, Carl did with me is, I think I said to him, or he said to me, what about the original language the Bible was written in, or the original languages, mainly Hebrew and Greek. And I think I had a desire to, to learn some of that. And uh, so he encouraged me in my first steps. I remember going around his house early, you know, it was about six o'clock on a Friday morning. I'd cycle up there and, and he'd be getting the fire going in the winter and uh, we'd sit there with Greek New Testaments and I'd be looking at this thing going, I have no idea what this is about. I mean, this is crazy. And uh, so now I have the privilege of teaching New Testament Greek at London Seminary where I trained. And it's been, a, uh, been doing it for four years and it's just wonderful. Like, you know, these guys are coming, giving up their lives and their, and their work and, and everything to study God's word. Um, so I do have that great privilege and, and I ought to just mention that to you as well. Some of you know as well that I've been involved in um, uh, Aboriginal ministry in Australia. Um, I've not been out there myself. Um, although I was supposed to be scheduled to probably go when the pandemic hit. Um, and uh, so it doesn't look like that's going to happen for a long time. But um, what that means, I'm part of a trust that effectively is a, uh, a conduit, a, 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 um, a way of sending financial support from this country to pastors serving in Aboriginal communities. White Australian churches don't often support Aboriginal ministry. I don't know why that is. There seems to be a cultural barrier. They don't recognise it as a particular need. Now, that is a general statement, and there will be exceptions in Australia. Okay, and I'll probably get some angry email, emails from Australian churches, but, you know, that is true. I mean, that is true. That's what the brothers over there, the white Australian brothers say, and the Aboriginal brothers as well. And um, so my predecessor at Campus Church is an Australian, white Australian. He's back in Australia, ministering amongst Aboriginal people and we as a trust then pastorally support him and um, one or two other Aboriginal <coughs> brothers and another white Australian pastor as they seek to do this and it's just again a privilege to have that kind of ministry. Some of you might have actually heard um, Pastor Henry Louis um, at NEC four or five years ago I think um, but uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful time and, and um, so yeah those things too anyway um, and this is important as I begin, um, please turn to Colossians chapter 3. And having uh, chosen Colossians 3, it occurred to me that it was an even better choice than I was aware of at the time because I understand what's happening here today <laughs> with me and even me talking about myself. And the thing that I want to leave with you right at the beginning is, is if you go away today talking about me, you have missed the point of why I am here. Okay? You have missed the point. And I might have missed the point of telling you. So I'm going to try really, really hard not to miss the point. And I want you to try hard, because I know there are other things that are important that are going on. Um, but let me read to you again Colossians 3, uh, 1 to four. Thank you, Adam, for reading it um, earlier. The bigger passage gives a bit of the context. So Colossians 3, 1 to 4. I, I'm reading in the ESV. I, I noticed Adam read in that, so I trust that's okay for you guys, but it's not that different from the NIV if that's what you have. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's just bow in prayer, shall we? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One night a a police officer was on patrol and uh, he came across a man who was evidently drunk and the man was searching for something near a bright streetlight and wanting to make sure that he was okay. He approached the guy, the police officer approached the guy and uh, to see if he could help him. The man said that he had lost his watch and he was looking for it. So the police officer offered to help and asked the man, where did you lose it? And the guy went, way over there, pointing to somewhere else off in the darkness. So the police officer said, well, why are you looking over here? He said, because there's a street light here and I can see what I'm doing. (laughs) I don't know if that's a apocryphal story or not. But you know, often, often I think in the Christian life, and, and even if you're not a Christian here this morning, often we can be looking for the right things, but we're looking in the wrong places. I mean, you can also look for the wrong thing in the wrong place, and you can look for the wrong thing in the right place. But, but very often, particularly if you're a Christian here, you, you may be looking for the right thing this morning. You know, you want to deal with sin in your life. You want to overcome stuff. You know, you want to live a victorious Christian life. And I say amen. (laughs) You know. And you want to live for the honor of the Lord Jesus. And you want to live for God. And you want your life to have some matter and eternal meaning and significance. And and I say amen. And sometimes we can get sort of so focused in on those thoughts and those realities that we actually are kind of, we're looking for the right thing. But we're not really looking in the right place for it. Maybe if you're not a believer here and you're looking for something, you're looking maybe for happiness or, or for meaning, maybe there's a meaning in life and you just don't really know what it is, but maybe you're here because you're trying to grasp it and you're trying to move past this sort of accumulation, accumulation of stuff that we call materialism and, and you're just sort of sick of it. Maybe you're after some peace. Maybe the fakeness of the world we live in is too fake for you to continue and you want some reality, I'd suggest you're in the right place. Suggest in looking into God's word, you're going to be looking in the right place there. But are you, are you honing in really on the very right location, looking for the right thing in the right place? That's what we need to be doing this morning. We need to look for the right thing in the right place. And, you know, as I read Colossians, did you see the right thing in the right place? You notice what was repeated again and again and again? Christ, right? This person, Jesus Christ. And where is he? 
heaven, rise above, <laughs> yeah? So the right thing, the right person, in the right place. And that's why Christ is going to be enough this morning. Whatever issues you face today, I mean, seriously, if you just took a moment to stand and just sit, I'm standing, and you think, what have you come with? What are the burdens you're carrying? What is the pain you're carrying? Or on the other side, what are the joys and the happiness? What are the things that you came with this morning? Whatever is going on in your life, the Bible screams from every corner, Jesus is enough. Christ is enough. Say, oh, great. So will he heal me from that disease? I have no idea. I don't know. He, He will do definitely one day. You might have to wait a while. It might be that your, his purpose is for you to go through the disease. Say, will he, will he deal with the issues in my marriage or my family? Well, he can do. Will you submit to him? Will he be the main thing? Because he is enough for that and everything else. And if you're looking for happiness, then you don't know the meaning of happiness until you've come to know this person. Jesus Christ. And I know that many of you might have heard many things and will know Christ for yourself. And I want to encourage you this morning then that, that when he saved you and he brought you to himself and you, you, you had faith in him and, and you loved him, that wasn't a bad choice. <laughs> that, wasn't, that, was, that was the right deal. You, you got the, the whole nine yards. But the key to looking the right thing is to look in the right place. So I want to take you through Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Just before I do, one or two introductory comments, just, just so you know uh, what I am going to do, what I'm not going to do. First of all, when we come to Scripture, Scripture is a historical document. And because of that, it's written in a particular situation. It was written, so for example, the letter to the Colossi was written in the late AD 50s. Okay? So it was written nearly 2,000 years ago, right? It wasn't written to a place in Fernwood, all right? It wasn't written to, written to a family or a church in Fernwood in the 21st century. It wasn't. It has cultural and historical geographical notes that are different from our own assumptions. So sometimes, as we go through, I'm just going to fill in a few of those. There'll be a few little details that I fill in. I'm trying to lose you in that, all right? I don't want to give you a history lecture. Okay, but that's how we make good sense of what the scripture is actually saying. What did it mean when it was first given? And then how does it apply to us today? And we'll do that as we go through. Now, scripture is also a historical document in the sense that it wasn't written in English. As I pointed out a few minutes ago, the New Testament part was written in Greek. It wasn't even written in the classical Greek of the time. You know, Plato and Aristotle and all those people that nobody's ever read but quotes regularly, you know, as if they've sort of studied the classics and I haven't. That's classical Greek. It was a very high, difficult language. Um, Scripture was written in common Greek. That's really good, isn't it? It was written in the language of the people. Koine is the technical word. It just means common or normal. And as good as translations are, sometimes there's just a little bit more color that's just needed. So I'm going to fill a few of those things in as well. Not too much. And I'm not going to lecture you as a Greek lecturer this morning. I promise. Okay? But... Here we are looking at Colossians 3 and we go, well, where on earth is Colossae? And what is Colossae and what was the church like? Well, Colossae was a small city. 
um, in, in the first century, it had been a very important city in Asia Minor, which is kind of modern-day Turkey. All right? It had been a very important city. It ceased to exist from about the 8th century. So it was still had some importance in the first century, but it was declining in its importance. Paul is the apostle who was commissioned by God to go to the Gentile cities outside of Jerusalem and to take the gospel to them. And currently, as he writes this, he's probably in prison in Rome, in the capital city. He's under house arrest. You read about it at the end of Acts. He's chained to a Roman soldier who he tells the gospel to, and then they switch the guard after eight hours or whatever, and then he tells the gospel to the next guy, and he tells the gospel to the next guy, so much so that Caesar finds out about the gospel because the Roman soldiers get converted. And so whilst he's in his own house, he's able to rent a house, he's able to have people visit him, he's able to minister, he's not allowed to leave. Um, he is chained to a Roman soldier, so there's obviously complications with that. But he's also writing. He's writing profusely. He writes Ephesians, he writes Colossians, he writes other books. Um, or what we have as books and letters. He writes other letters we don't even have. He's prolifically ministering even in that difficult situation. So bear in mind this. If I say to you, as I have, you know, Christ is enough in whatever you're going through, whatever circumstances. And of course, some of you I know a little bit, and some of you are a little bit better, and others I don't know at all. But you know, Paul knew what it was like to not be in easy circumstances and still effectively say, Christ is enough. That's where he was. Struggling, but, but Christ was enough for him. I realize I'm going to get my notes confused if I do that. So <clears throat> Colossae was um, a slightly declining city, but the Colossian church was a growing church. Paul didn't plant the church. He didn't actually visit it that we know of, at least in this early stage. Um, a guy named Epaphras... He came and he heard Paul preach when he was preaching in Ephesus. Paul was there in Ephesus for three years. And then Epaphras went from Ephesus, went to Colossae, planted the church. Had some issues and then traveled more than a thousand miles to Rome to visit Paul to ask for Paul's help. And Paul wrote this letter. Four chapters. To deal with the issues. So what were the issues? Well, basically there was two, two issues that got kind of combined together. There was a kind of Greek culture issue. And Greek religions at the time, they had this view that, that the few special people would attain to a higher knowledge. It was a spiritual, secret, mysterious knowledge. And the word mystery is loaded with that meaning. So when Paul in Colossians 1 talks about the mystery of Christ, he's nailing these Greek religions and saying, you know that mystery you're all talking about? Everybody, oh, only the special few ever reach. No, every believer in Christ, everybody who knows him, who trusts him, has the highest knowledge. Because Christ's enough, right? And that was one of the heresies, though, that was coming into the church. They were being affected by this idea that some Christians went even further. That's a complete lie. Okay, I stand before you as a convicted sinner, take all the Ten Commands, have broken them all, just like you have. We're convicted by the law. We're all on the same level. And you know what? If you're a believer, then like me, you're in Christ. And how much higher can you go than being in Christ? That's what we're going to find out, right? How much higher can you go? It's just not higher, okay? Just, just in case you missed it. Anyway, so they were teaching this kind of higher knowledge. And that was affecting the church. It was dividing the church. It was damaging the church. People are distraught that they don't have this higher knowledge. Others are proud that they do have it, you see the kind of things that it would do to a church. 
The other thing that was happening at the same time was there was a Jewish sort of influence. Now the Jews sometimes, even those who came to Christ, they found it hard to kind of let go of some of those, those rituals and those uh, Sabbath days and those kind of meat-eating sort of laws and those kinds of things you find all the way through Exodus, Leviticus, the book you never read called Numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay, So if you ever read those books, which it's worthwhile reading, you get a lot of good out of them, Okay, that, that they got this struggle of, do we have to keep all these laws? Do we need them for salvation? And some of them are saying, yes. And of course, the answer is no, because Christ is enough. But that was affecting the church. Can you imagine? You turn up at church and somebody says to you, you didn't keep the Sabbath day yesterday. Saturday, you know. I saw you out. What were you doing if you saw me out? You know, so. But, you know, and can you imagine what it does to a church? It just divides it, doesn't it? it? Splits it up. No wonder Epaphras would go a thousand miles. Right? To the great Apostle Paul. And great being his great God. But Paul was a great man used by a great God. And so Paul writes the letter, and then put in bold letters, if you want to understand Colossians, you need to understand really the heart of Colossians, which is this text. And that's why I want to run this down together with you. Christ is enough, folks. Let's see why. Uh, verse 1, then. Colossians 3. If you've got a Bible open, probably useful, as you can look down then. <clears throat> and the first statement then that's made, which, which kind of... Whoop, which um, then is the basis for everything that comes in these verses. If then you have been raised with Christ. Stop there. Right? If then you have been raised with Christ. Some translations say, since then you have been raised with Christ. Really, it's a question. Now, the expected answer to the question is, you have. Because you're believers. I'm writing to believers. So that's why you translate it since then. But it is important to stop and say, this is a question, friends. And you need to then say, so the question I'm asking is, have I then been raised with Christ? You say, well, what does that mean? Well, that's why the word then, which kind of translates the word therefore, right, is therefore. So you know when you read the word therefore, you always ask the question, what's it there for? Yeah, that's right. And it throws you back. And so you go back. So, well, if we've been raised with Christ, what on earth does that mean? Well, let's go back and find out what that means. And that's why I appreciate Adam reading a large chunk. Because if you were to go back, effectively, to verse 6, you start seeing Paul unpack this truth about what we would call our union, or our unitedness, that's a word, and our connection, spiritually, with Jesus. So look, let me just look at verse 6, chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So you received Christ. What, is it? what does that mean, Paul? Well, so walk in him. You can do a lot of sort of cartoon images in your head here, can't you? Putting on a Jesus suit or, you know, it's like, what does that mean to walk in him? Well, in is the word often used in the Bible and with to describe an inseparable bond that God has, has sort of welded between you and Jesus if you are a Christian. It is utterly inseparable. For more information, see Romans 8. Okay? It is inseparable. And so, when you walk, walk in the Bible means live. Live the Christian life, right? Live a godly life. So when you walk, you literally walk about your life, you, you are living in Christ because you are inseparably bound to him. 
rooted, we carry on, verse 7, and built up in him. You see that? Yeah. So as you grow as a Christian, how are you growing? Well, you're in Christ. And it's that connection with Jesus, that spiritual connection, which is helping you grow, which is making you grow and being built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. No, no kidding, right? I mean, <laughs> when you know that Jesus is doing all the hard work in building you up, then, then you come and we give thanks, don't we, that he's doing all this hard work wonderfully. Then we go on to verse 8. Let's just jump down to verse 11. What does it really mean to be connected with Jesus? This is, let's go back a step in history, forward in the passage, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what is, what is going on here? Well, it's, it's a little more simple than it sounds in terms of explaining it and, and understanding the words. The reality is mind-blowing. Okay? So the rea- the, what's going on here is in verse 11, we have the idea of circumcision being brought in. Paul's bringing in the idea of circumcision. He's thinking, okay, those Jews in the congregation, they're going on about circumcision. I'll tell them about circumcision. Now, the Bible describes circumcision. So, you know, the, very, the, the sort of physical cutting off of the foreskin of the, 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 the man's penis was a vivid description, though, of sin. Okay, that's what it is. In fact, the, the Bible actually says, both in the Old Testament and the New, that a true Jew is circumcised, you know where? In the heart, right? Because the actual physical thing was meant to indicate something. And I mean, it, that's the reproductive organ, right? And what are you reproducing? Sin. And what needs to happen to sin? It needs to be cut off. Right? So all Paul's saying is, look, I'm not dealing here with actual physical circumcision. I'm saying sin, which circumcision points to, needs to be cut off. We can't reproduce sin. So what happened? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the heart, right? By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You know, when Christ died on the cross... You died with him. Your old life, if you're a believer now, your old life is dead. It is not alive. All right? It is dead, buried, and gone. It doesn't exist anymore. That sinful element of you, often Paul talks about as the flesh or the old man, right? Is dead. Died, cut off by Christ. That's what circumcision of the heart is. And we were there spiritually when Jesus died on the cross. God connected us with him. It's an astonishing reality. What else? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. So when Jesus was buried, we were connected. Yeah, that's right. We we went into the grave too. And verse 12, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So when Jesus rose to new life, guess what? We rose to new life. Can you explain that to me, Chris? No, I can't. It's a mystery. That one is a mystery, right? Nobody knows that one. That's union with Christ. That's what it means to be connected. It's just that I know it's real. I know it really happened. I know that God has counted all my sin against Christ, and in Christ on the cross, he punished him because he saw me there. 
And then he put me in Christ in the grave, and then he raised me with Christ. That's what it means. That's what Paul is saying. So then, if you have been raised with Christ, that's what it means. Have you died to your old life? Has Christ come, and if you like, has he, has he cut you off? Has he, has he circumcised your heart? Are you changed and transformed? Because if you are, you died with Christ in that old life, and now you have a brand new life. You're raised to new life. And so Paul can say, if, and I expect you to answer the question, yes, I am. If you, since you've been raised, then what? What do I do? And that's a great question. What do you do? Right? He's just spent this whole time saying, we have been like this. We, we are united with Christ. Now we're raised. And there's a sense in which the word raised, by the way, if you, if you follow the logic of the resurrection, not, on, not in the gospel accounts, right? Because it's a real resurrection. And Jesus walks around on earth for another 40 days, doesn't he? Okay? But in the letters, as they explain the theology of it, you don't just raise Christ up from the dead. You raise him, you know where? All the way, right? He goes all the way. Ephesians 1. Raise them up all the way to the highest place, the name above all other names, right? So the resurrection kind of sort of has a pause for 40 days, and then he keeps going, right? So, and that's where we go as well. Just read Ephesians 2. So if you have been raised with Christ, and you kind of go, well, how far do you mean, Paul? Well, seek. Here's the two things you've got to do. Seek and set your minds in verse 1 and 2. Seek. The things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Two, set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. So each time you can see the seek and the setting, your minds, right, are followed by the phrase on the things above, right? And then the first qualification where Christ is seated, so up there, positive, and the second qualification, not on the things that are on earth down here, Okay? So two things basically related, seeking and setting your minds. So what does it mean to seek and to set your minds? And I've kind of gone way past my notes. Okay, this is good. Seeking. Um, seeking means to search for. Okay, you're looking for something intently. It's, uh, it's more than just seeking something in your heart, you know, desiring, but it's got that desire and then you go after it. I mean, if you like Easter eggs around Easter, you will hunt for them, won't you? <laughs> You'll actually get up off your chair and think, I'm not going to wait for them to come to me because I won't get as much. If I get out there fast, you know, I don't know. Well, I do try not to beat my kids too much, but, you know, it's one of the advantages of fatherhood, isn't it? You know, See, Drew's laughing. He understands these things. Um, you know, you're seeking. You're going after something. You, you're pursuing it. That's the word here. That's the idea that Paul's going. He's saying, listen, if... If you have been raised up there with Christ then, well then, seek it, right? Seek there, pursue that. You say, well, kind of what, Paul? Well, heavenly things, basically. Heavenly things, where, where Christ is. And that's the point. It's where Christ is, isn't it? It's not even just, well, there'll be a glorious reunion with with. Brothers and sisters have gone before. You've got family members who've gone to be with the Lord and, and you can't wait for that reunion. That's not wrong. But you know, your true joy must be, and, and it will be if you're a believer, Christ. You get to see him. All right? I mean, what will that be like, that moment? That, that's going to be astonishing. So start looking at him now. <laughs> All right? That's the point. 
If you've got this new life, start looking now. And there's two things we're given in this. Uh, set your, set your, uh, sorry, seek the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God and what he's doing, seated. So his location and what he's doing. His location is the right hand. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, no offense lefties, but the right hand was considered to be the right hand of power and authority. And so when, God's, when God acts, he acts with his right hand. Now, that's a bit ridiculous because God doesn't have hands, does he? I mean, Jesus does, and he's God. This is the mystery of the Trinity now, so I'll not get too deep into that. But God is spirit, right? He doesn't have hands. So it's, it's, meant in, it's given you a mental picture of sort of might and power. And, of course, you could be left-handed and strong as well. So that's not the point. But Jesus is at the place of power and authority and honor and majesty. That is where he's at now. In fact, Jesus in his trial before the Sanhedrin, before he is killed, you know, he said to them in Luke 22, 69, he said, from now on you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the power of the majesty on high. See, for them, that was the end. That was their last opportunity. I mean, that's tragic, isn't it? For them, seeing Christ is loss for eternity. Is it for you? Will it be for you? Or will it be the joy? The joy of the seeing Christ. What will it be? And what is he doing there? Because he's doing something there. Well, he's sitting. And you think, well, that's a bit lazy, isn't it? I mean, well, he's done a lot of hard work. Give him a, you know, he's, he's been around and done a lot. But the sitting is actually far more important than you might think. Sitting is indicating two great realities. Two great realities. One, something is finished and something else too has begun. First, he's finished his priestly work. You know Jesus is a priest? If you were to turn over to Hebrews and uh, in your Bibles, just a few books onwards from Colossians and chapter 10 and verse 11 and 12, you'd find these words and uh, the writer to the Hebrews, we don't know who it is, but the Holy Spirit obviously was, was the author. So the Holy Spirit is speaking about the uh, office of Christ as a priest and he compares it to the office of the priests on earth and he does a little comparison, which is really helpful here. In verse 11 he says, And every priest stands, human priests, daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, Jesus sitting down is actually really significant what it means is, it means he's not offering any more sacrifices. Why? Because the cross was enough. See, because Jesus' work, guess what, is enough. He's dealt with the issue of sin. He's dealt with every issue. If you read Colossians 1, you find that everything is dealt with at the cross. Because Jesus is enough. And that's what he's done. He's now finished his priestly work and he sat down. You wouldn't have ever found a priest sitting down in Israel. I mean, I don't mean he never sat down at home or anything, okay? I just mean he never stopped his work. Because you know what happened? He'd offer a sacrifice for sin. And what would he do? Sin! They'd be like, oh, I can't sit down. I've got to offer another sacrifice. And then, because you imagine it be a bit exhausting being a priest. But it was. It was like that. And they were representing the people constantly. And Jesus offers one sacrifice himself. And then he sits down and you go, 
Listen, you know, you want to search something in your heart and mind and outwardly? Put your mind and your heart on Jesus as the finished sacrifice today, right? If you do that, everything on earth will start to fall into place. If you think of him as the finished, wonderful, turning work. Why do you think we take the Lord's Supper together? Why do you think we talk about the cross, sing about the cross, preach about the cross? Why is it so important? Because it's what brings us to God. And it's done. What else is begun? And the second thing is kingly work. He's king. Now the king sits when he's enthroned. And so we haven't seen that enthronement yet. We will see it in the future. And so that will be a wonderful time. But he is king now. Listen, be in no doubt. Boris Johnson is the prime minister of Great Britain under the kingship of Jesus the Christ. And every government on this earth owes allegiance to Christ. And every government on earth will stand before Christ for everything they have ever done. But so will you. So will you. Are you willingly bearing the knee now to the Christ, to the King? That's what I, I mean, that's what Paul's saying. Listen, lift up your heart. Well, that's Hebrews. You know, lift up your mind, search, search, seek, right? Christ sitting. Finished work, continuing work. Finished cross work, salvation done, continuing kingly work, the work of the gospel in our lives as we live under Christ's headship, Christ's kingship. What else are we to do though? Second thing, set your minds. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Okay, so hold on a minute. What's this different from searching? Well, it's just Paul using a different word, using, you know, think about things, use your minds. To kind of describe the same reality, these two things, seeking and searching, uh, setting your mind. By the way, I should say, both of them in the Greek grammar suggest that you do them constantly. Something you do all the time, they're continuous. Okay, so you're continually seeking and continually setting your mind. And the reason that he uses set your mind is because it's real easy for you to set your mind elsewhere, right? <laughs> it's just the easiest thing in the world for you to be sitting there drifting there. <gasps> now he's sitting up straight, see? Preachers can get little things in there to kind of help you listen, right? But you set your mind. And you actually have to do that. I mean, that's, a, that's an active thing. That's not passive. You don't go, well, I'll just let God set my mind. It's, he'll just happen. I'll just come to church and I'll just be, you know, infected with, well, not infected. That's the opposite. I'll be healed. <laughs> I'll be just given goodness. Well, that does happen. But you actually have to switch in. And I'm not just talking here about preaching. Talking about setting your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. This is the qualification this time. So what does it mean not to set things mind on things on earth? Because that's kind of important. Is God saying, is Paul saying, you can't think about things that are on earth? I mean, full stop. Yeah, so you can't think about your family. You can't think about, you know, football. Oops. You can't think about the Bible. The Bible's on earth, isn't it? doesn't mean that. So what does it mean then? It's talking about being heavenly minded. You ever heard that phrase? You've probably heard it in a negative way. You ever heard the phrase, ah, that person, they're too heavenly minded for any earthly use. That is the wrong way round. This text proves it. You are going to be of no earthly use unless you are heavenly minded. That is the point. We have to get our minds where Christ is because he's enough for everything we're facing, everything you're facing as a church, everything you're facing as individuals and families. And that... Is how you live for his glory here. You think on him above. You say, well, so what does it mean not to think on the things of earth? 
It means think of the things on earth through the lens of heaven. All right? So it's, it's like you need to go to heaven and look down on earth and go, Oh, I see it from your perspective, God. Right, I've got it. Now I can do it. Do you see? You say, but I can't go to heaven. Next verse. For, this is the explanation as to why. For you have died. Yes, you've told us that, Paul. We know that, yes. You've died. I died with Christ. And your life is hidden. Is it? I mean, I'm alive now. I can see you guys are alive, just about. Okay? You know, and we're alive. Yes, but there's another life. Didn't you know? You have another life. And that's hidden. It's not seen. And where's that? It's with Christ in God. Oh, that's in heaven. So you do have the ability. You don't have to go there physically. You have the ability, because you're in Christ with, with him now, and look down on earth, or if you like, look around you with heavenly eyes. As long as you're keeping your mind set where your life really is. Okay? Listen, there's going to be a day... Well, actually, let me not get ahead of myself. <laughs> your life is lived now in two locations. You are here in Fernwood this morning, and wherever you live... This is where you live. It's real, okay? It's not fake, okay? It's not even secondary. It's just, this is it. This is real, real life. At the same time, if you are a believer, you are really alive now in heaven with Christ. That is actually, look at the next bit, when Christ, who is your life. That is an unbelievable statement, isn't it? Christ isn't now, you're not just connected to Christ, now Christ is described as your life. Well, that's, that's unbelievable. In fact, in the culture of the day, it was believed in some of the, the Greek religions that it's actually believed today in some cultures. Um, they believe in what's called like a life token. Okay? And the life token would be an object. And they'll take that object and they hide it so it's not visible. Somewhere safe. Well, they think it's somewhere safe. And whilst that object remains out of sight and intact, they believe their lives are saved. Okay? And actually, in some writings, they refer to those life tokens as their lives. Because their lives are so bound up with the token that's hidden, that as long as it stays intact, they're okay. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Paul says, Christ is your life. And those those ones who were from a culture of Greek culture would have gone, oh, life token, oh my goodness. <gasps> Jesus is our life token? Well, everything's okay then, isn't it? Because who's going to break into heaven and wrestle Jesus off the throne and put him down? Satan couldn't do it, and he's the most powerful being in the universe apart from God. So what chance does, you know, any man have? None. Christ is ruling, he is king. And no one is going to take away your life from him. And you have the ability, if you set your mind up there, guess what? You can see down here, right? You can see it through God's eyes. You can think God's thoughts after him by reading this. Saturate your mind and your heart in this. And you will see the way God sees. And it will lift your eyes heavenward. You don't have to walk around looking up at the sky, by the way, folks. All right? And if you can pray with your head down. <laughs> All right? But it's the focus of your heart and your mind and your whole being. What is your life pursuing today? Is it pursuing really where you live? Because it seems to make logical sense that we do that. And Paul's saying that. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, oh, there's a time when it's going to become visible. So it was, it's hidden there with Christ, that life. 
But one day Christ is coming back, isn't he? Do you remember that? We often forget that somehow. He's coming again. And you know when he comes, bang, something unusual is going to happen. <laughs> unusual, slightly, slight understatement. What is going to happen is there's going to be a total transformation of your life and your earthly life is going to fuse with your spiritual life in some incredible moment. Christ, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. What is glory? Glory is bright, white, shining light that comes from the character of God. God's character is so pure, he is so holy in that sense, that his goodness, his love, his kindness, his gentleness actually comes out as bright white light. That's what glory is. And you're going to be transformed into the same image. And scripture actually says that we share his glory. That's a good future. But that's the life that you are actually living now. It's just not visible yet. How awesome. How awesome. So why on earth would you not want to put your minds up there? Why would you not want to look to Christ this morning? Why would you not want to live for him? There's nothing greater. There's no one more powerful. There's no one who's ever done the work. He's done it all. Let me pray, then we'll sing. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. It is astonishing. And, and uh, the truths we can hardly explain because they're so rich and full and... Uh, and they're beyond us, Lord God. You are truly beyond all praising, as one song says. And so, as we come now, Lord, with our finite minds trying to grasp the realities, we pray that you might help us to lift our minds, put them on Christ, and give us a desire to seek him regularly, daily, moment by moment, to live for him and to look to him so that we might see how to live in this world until that day when you reunite and Christ comes and reveals our true Life as spirit and body together and spiritual life fuses with this, with this life and, and we live in the wonder, wonderful freedom of the children of God. That's what we long for, Lord. So thank you for your gospel and your word and your goodness and it helps to praise you in this final song in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.